May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building, the calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate. We invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9.30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to you today. Good morning. This morning readings is from Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep God's testimonies, who seek God with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in God's ways. You have commanded your precepts to be diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteousness ordinances. I will observe your statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. This is the word of God for the people of God. Our second scripture reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. This is the fifth and final week we've been reading from these first chapters in 1 Corinthians, which you'll remember is a letter written from Paul to the early church and is written as a half of the correspondence that was their relationship with one another. Uh, A number of years ago, I started a practice of reading emails from people who were frustrated or upset with something I'd done or not done, as if there were an extra P.S. at the bottom that went something like this. P.S., I love you and I want you to flourish and the church to succeed. I think it's helpful to hear these words from Paul with that same assumption. Written communication, of course, doesn't come with tone of voice. So as I read it this morning, we have to imagine what tone Paul wrote it with as he gave this direction, advice, correction to the church in Corinth. I invite you to listen for the word of God. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. 
For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, or another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before the sermon, I'd like to give you a little opportunity for conversation with one another as we reflect and imagine this activity of God that happens as people plant and water seeds of divine love in us. I wonder if you could call to your mind someone who has nurtured your faith. If you, use, you want to use Paul's metaphor, someone who planted a seed of faith for you or watered your faith. It could be someone you know personally or someone you know only by their writing or their art. Who's one person who has helped grow your faith? I want to give you a minute and a half to turn to a neighbor and share just a short account of who that person is. At 45 seconds, I'll say switch. That means if you've been talking, you should start listening. You get bonus points if you talk to someone you don't know well uh, and learn their name. All right? Got the question? Someone who either planted a seed of faith in you or nurtured your faith. Ready, set, go. Thank you for taking time to reflect and share and listen. I encourage you to continue to think about the people who've helped shape your faith, who've taken undertaken this generative work of helping plant and nurture seeds of faith and faithfulness in our lives. I know that I have been shaped and continue to be shaped by the generous care of so many who in small ways and in years-long relationships have invested in me, seeing the divine image in me and chosen to help me receive and be ready to share love. I encourage you to continue that reflection. Will you join with me now in prayer? O Holy Spirit, may my words and our thoughts and our lives reflect the fullness and beauty of your grace. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I have been thinking this week about the people who planted seeds of faith and watered the faith that I hold, thinking about family members and loved ones, church Sunday school teachers and youth sponsors, as well as writers and artists who've helped me see and claim a faith that's distinctive. I remember when I was in middle school in confirmation class, I had a little fear that the questions that I was holding in my mind, which pushed back against the literal faith that I learned in elementary school, Sunday school, 
that the questions I was asking at some point were gonna get me kicked out of church. (laughs) They were not questions that I heard people asking in fifth grade Sunday school or sometimes in sixth or seventh, and I was worried that I was going to have to choose between continuing to belong in a community that had been loving and nurturing of me, but checking my brain at the door, or keeping asking the questions and lose the community that had shaped and nurtured my faith. I was filled with joy to discover, for me it happened at a nerd camp for high school theologians at the Candler School of Theology. I read Paul Tillich's Dynamics of Faith, a thin little volume in which he defines faith as being grasped by an ultimate concern, as he points us beyond the symbols of faith that were raised with, that were shaped by, to something beyond, something deeper, something transcendent and expansive. It was that reading that opened up the possibility of ample, generous space, at least for me. And it was important to learn that Tillich's theology had shaped generations that would come after him, including leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., whose expression of the Christian faith was tied to the uh, social movements to change the reality of the racist systems embedded into our U.S. American culture, that theology not only could have a vast, ample, life-giving space, but could have traction in the world as we push for love and justice being expressed and embodied more fully in the world, as we push back against structures that limit and oppress and deny power. I was overwhelmed by the gift of that writing and a community in which to read it. I also reflect on how important it was to me in my first semester of seminary at the Claremont School of Theology that my four core courses were taught by women, four different women, each of whom led with a distinctive personality and style, but each of whom was an esteemed scholar in her field and gave me a breadth of varieties of roles that I could see myself in, people whose lives I could imagine my own into. That sort of representation matters in that it helps us believe that we can grow into our own distinctive selves. What difference that made. Of course, all of it made sense for me because I was nurtured in a church congregation, in a community that made me feel like I belonged and that there was a whole community of people looking out for me and wanting my flourishing, wanting my success. I was raised in a church that's called First United Methodist Church in a town in the middle of Nebraska called Grand Island. actually the third United Methodist Church in that town, if you're into chronology, but it was the first United Methodist Church anywhere. It was chartered in 1968 
just days after the merger of the Evangelical United Brethren and Methodist Church gave birth to the denomination we now know as the United Methodist Church. It was in my childhood then, in the early 1980s, a still young church and a church where young people were centered and valued and it made a big difference in my life. I think about all of these ways that the community in uh, elevating leaders, in providing generous spaces, in offering belonging, does this work that's at the heart of the identity of the church. The church is a community, a context in which we grow in faith. We get better at loving God and loving our neighbor with all that we do, which is certainly a one frequently cited and faithful way of describing what this is all about. It's consistent with what John Wesley, a founder of our Methodist movement, described as the heart of Christian perfection, his distinctive teaching about what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. This is the fifth of five weeks where we've been talking about Christian perfection because this doctrine is at the center of our Methodist identity, uh, but confusing to contemporary ears. When you hear the phrase Christian perfection in this moment of the world, it's dangerously possible to interpret it to mean a kind of self-righteous perfectionism. And that's distant from what Wesley was meaning to convey when he spoke of this doctrine by which Christians having received grace continue to be perfected all through their lives. That being a Christian isn't about saying a a phrase, speaking a formula, and checking a box so that you're good to go, saved from eternal damnation. Christian discipleship is about a continual journey of being perfected, sanctified, made more loving, a journey that continues throughout our lives. And Wesley taught and believed that it would be possible to attain such perfection in this life. He spoke about it mostly happening as people got close to their death. As people came close to the end, they have the possibility of being so perfected, so practiced in love, that it's all of who they are, that their entire being could become a demonstration and embodiment of the love of God and neighbor, a kind of perfection in love. Perfection and perfectionism are, however, dangerous ways of phrasing the goal of our faith because it's not about exempting ourselves from the frailties of the human reality, acknowledging with humility the ways that we're gonna get it wrong, that we're gonna fall short, that we're gonna miss the mark, not because we're not putting the love of God at the center, but because we see in a limited view, we're constrained by the circumstances of our lives and what we've been able to experience prevented from doing it all right. And in this moment in the conversation US America, as we're a church that seeks to be about the work of love and justice, there's a continuing process of letting ourselves change, built into the idea of Christian perfectionism, 
Christian perfection, not perfectionism, built into the idea of Christian perfection is the ongoing transformation that we're gonna get better words to describe God's love in the world and better words with which to name one another, that we're gonna get better at treating one another as neighbors who bear the divine image and we're gonna have some rough edges knocked off and some uh, hard surfaces softened as we encounter one another with mutual understanding and tenderness that pushes back against the division we've been enculturated into, judgments and assumptions about who's worthy and who's unworthy, about the value of each human according to their economic well-being or the color of their skin or who they love. We have to push back hard to let ourselves be continually refined because even when we mean well, we sometimes choose words that cause harm, not because we're bad humans, but because we're still learning. Christian perfection gives us a way to understand that a part of what we do is continue to learn, continue to change, continue to get better. Because what it looks like to be a Christian isn't about getting all of the answers right. It's about learning the ways of being transformed, of being changed, of softening our hearts toward one another so that we'll always be a work in progress. We'll always be unlearning and relearning the ways to be human, to be a community with one another, to be together. Uh, John Wesley, in his teaching on Christian perfection, talked a lot about mistakes and sins and tried to clarify the difference between the two, that a person could make a mistake not out of sinfulness, but only because of their limited vision, their limited life experience. And part of our work is to work on those mistakes, but it's a little bit like when you say someone's heart was in the right place, even though they did a thing that caused harm that mistake might have been an unintentional harm or hardship caused, but not because the person didn't intend well. And then it becomes our responsibility to work on that, to continue the work of being made and remade, to learn different ways of being and speaking and embodying the love of God. I was reading again in Wesley's plain account of Christian perfection, this small volume edited over decades as he sought to offer and then clarify and correct and uh, distill the teaching of Christian faith, uh, the idea of Christian perfection. In it, he responds to critiques or to misunderstandings. And one of the critiques or misunderstandings he pushes back against is in helping us see through the reality that though we seek to live God's love fully, it doesn't always equate to a visual or perceptible success in this world. That our efforts at love, our living of love, doesn't always bear the results that we might intend. And he, he seeks to prevent us from judging or diminishing someone else's work journey in Christian perfection because it doesn't look like they've experienced the change we think they should have. He says, uh, 
some of us are too often guilty of limiting the Almighty. God dispenses God's gifts just as God pleases. Therefore, it is neither wise nor modest to affirm that a person must be a believer for any length of time before they're capable of receiving a high degree of the spirit of holiness. You don't get credit for years as a Christian that automatically correlates to your getting closer to Christian perfection. He continues, God's usual method is one thing, but God's sovereign pleasure is another. God's usual method is one thing, but God's sovereign pleasure is another. Which is to say, there's a reason and an order to the way that we continue to gather Sunday after Sunday in the church. In the usual order of things, the longer you practice this, the better you get. The more your life looks like Christian perfection, divine love, a fullness of love of God and neighbor. But it's not the only way. And God might give it to one person to get a full and complete sort of love really quickly, or another to have a slower journey. There's a a quality that looks like whimsy or unpredictability in the living out of our Christian faith and its visibility in our world, and Wesley makes space for that. I appreciate how the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth borrows this metaphor from farming or gardening as he describes the work of growing in Christian faith, the work of planting and watering, and then God giving the growth. If you've tried growing things, especially from seed, I suspect you've learned what I have experienced, and that is there is not a direct correlation to what I do and the fruitfulness of the endeavor. Sometimes I'm good at growing vegetables, and sometimes I'm atrocious. Sometimes the seed that's planted grows and bears all sorts of fruit, and sometimes it does hardly anything. And especially if you've planted on any kind of scale, you know that planting and watering are only part of the work. You're dependent on weather and the quality of the soil and what else happens all around you. The importance of doing the work of planting and watering is great, but it's not enough. There's a certain something that's out of our control that leads to the spiritual growth we long for. And it's important to recognize with humility that the righteousness of the planting and the faithfulness of the watering are not visible in the results that are created. Too often in our world, especially dangerously in our world, we look at the results of a person's life and we think dangerously that wealth somehow represents virtue and that poverty shows a lack of morality. Nothing could be further from the case. And these metaphors from Paul's teaching and the teaching of Wesley help us get at this truth, that there's a something beyond our control, that we can't judge by the results of a person's life what their spiritual life is like, what their faithfulness looks like. And so we're given language to understand and believe and to push back against a world that too quickly commodifies and judges based on production and output and achievement, that there's a something else valued here, a work of faithful planting and watering that persists, that endures, that speaks of God. 
I was reading again some of the words of Howard Thurman, a black American mystic scholar and church leader who wrote eloquently language to help us describe exactly what this is. In his book, The Inward Journey, he reminds us that results are not crucial. He says, there are many forces over which the individual can exercise no control whatsoever. A man plants a seed in the ground and the seed sprouts and grows. The weather, the winds, the elements cannot be controlled by the farmer. The result is never a sure thing. So what does the farmer do? The farmer plants, always plants. Again and again, the farmer works at it. The ultimate confidence and assurance that even though his seed does not grow to fruition, seeds do grow and they do come to fruition. This is the faithful work we take up of planting and watering, of persisting in faith, not because it will always give us the results we hope for, but because it is a faithful work to give of ourselves, to persist in the journey of embodying love that matters whether or not it's visible to the world. We persist in our faith because it defines who we are. It reshapes us and it makes a difference in the world even when invisible, even when the seeds that we planted lead only to disappointment. The work of our faith then is to continue to push on, to continue to persist in the work of letting ourselves be made and remade in the image of divine love. Not because it's gonna get us anything, not because we're always gonna see the results, the implications of our investment, but because it matters. Because love shared is never wasted. Because forgiveness granted never means nothing because mercy and compassion make all the difference, even when the difference is not evident in this world. We continue to love because it lets us look more like Christ. It lets our love more closely resemble Christ's love in the world. It lets us become a living embodiment of Christian perfection, not for the sake of us as individuals, but for the sake of us as a community. So as you reflect on people who've planted seeds and watered your faith, I also invite you to reflect on how you're planting seeds and watering the faith of the community around you. What are you doing to persist in that hope-filled work of planting seeds of possibility, of sowing compassion and forgiveness and grace and trust? in all the places where we live our lives? What are you doing to water and nurture, to tend and nourish young and fragile life, to offer possibility of encouragement and hope and strength to things that are frail and vulnerable and weak in our world? The invitation of the gospel is to be people who continue to live always toward love, knowing that it's God's good gift that we're able to grow and flourish, and that all of this work matters. May it be so. Amen.